Hey, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbaugh. Now, Molly Serpel's new book, The Furrows, is one of those hot new literary fiction books people have been waiting for. You know, you've got folks from Publishers Weekly and Kirkus calling it brilliant and breathtaking and all that. Serpel's one of those writers that seem to come out of the gate fully formed. Her 2019 debut novel, The Old Drift, was this huge, ambitious epic that follows these families through generations. And it won a couple awards, including the UK's top prize for science fiction. We'll talk about her new one in a bit, but first, I wanted to play for you our interview about that first book. When she talked to NPR Scott Simon, she told him about how she was interested in the arbitrariness of borders and how mixed families can create their own cultures. This message comes from NPR sponsor LiveRight, publishers of Left for Dead, Shipwreck, Treachery, and Survival at the Edge of the World by Eric J. Dolan. The true story of five castaways abandoned on the Falkland Islands during the War of 1812. Available wherever books are sold. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Noom. Noom understands that not everyone is starting from the same place and takes that into account. With their first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, you can find a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. The Old Drift is a real saga of a story. That intertwines strangers into families, which will follow for a century, magic into everyday moments, and the story of a nation, Zambia, the former northern Rhodesia that's both caught up in and created in the currents of history. The Old Drift is the debut novel from Nomwale Serpo, a Zambian writer who's won many prizes for fiction and been published in The New Yorker and McSweeney's. She now teaches at the University of California at Berkeley and joins us from KQED in San Francisco. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. The story that you tell opens with a fateful encounter in 1904, a would-be photographer in a hotel lobby who stumbles. What begins to happen then? So Percy Clark, who is the historical figure, a British photographer who was trying to make his fortunes uh, in the middle of Africa, he accidentally reaches out for an Italian hotelier named Pietro Gavuzzi, who was historically the first hotel manager of the Victoria Falls Hotel. And so Percy grabs Uh, Pietro's reaches for his hat but pulls off uh, a chunk of his hair. And this causes a small flurry of activity as Pietro's wife rushes to his side. Her daughter reaches out uh, in anger and hits uh, a young African busboy, a Tonga man named Ngulube, who's also a historical figure who is mentioned in Percy Clark's memoir, Autobiography of an Old Drifter. I guess this is not a metaphorical reminder, but a literal reminder that life is all about unexpected occurrences and consequences, isn't it? Yes. A butterfly effect is one way to put it, where a small incident, a small slip, a small error, a small mistake can cause these much larger uh, consequences as time passes. So this interaction between these three men ends up setting off a kind of chain of relation between their three families that slowly whirls and swirls down like a vortex until we reach the final descendants, which is a love triangle of three people and uh, who are also trying to start a political revolution in a future Zambia, in Zambia of the 2020s. I'm interested in some of your characters with magical qualities. For example, a woman enveloped in her own hair. Yes. 
I was very enamored with the writing of Gabriel Garcia Marquez, in particular, Maria Luisa Bombal, who is a Chilean novelist who Borges called the mother of magical realism. And so I started writing about these women. Um, one of them cries all the time because she's had her heart broken. But when I say all the time, I mean for 50 years continuously, which Ceaselessly, obviously has yes, yeah. Uh, yeah, physical um, effects on her body. And then I, there's a character who goes blind, um, who every once in a while other characters believe they see eyes all over her body, uh, like the Greek god uh, Argos. So I was I was interested in th- these particular magical traits because they had to do with the body. Um, they had to do with um, the way emotion can manifest in these physical ways. It was kind of literalizing uh, some of the feelings that the three women have um, on the very surface of them. Among the many kind of impressions I think a reader will be left with is the the amorphousness of borders. Mm. Uh, I mean, they're really kind of a reasoned invention, aren't they? They are. And my country is a wonderful example of the arbitrariness of borders. Your your mother had a story, didn't she? Yes. So she has the story about her home village in Mbala in the north of the country. And the story was that when they drew the border um, of Zambia, it cut right through her village. Mm -hmm. And the chief was on one side, on the Tanzanian side, and he sent his sister to the Zambian side um, so that she could be the chieftainess. And my mother always said that that's why our tribe was so fiercely feminist is because we had a chieftainess. And so this wonderful kind of consequence of the arbitrary decision of the British um, to, to slice right through a village. Makes you understand there's a thin line between immigrant and emigrant, isn't there? Yes. It's it's a very interesting position to be in as an immigrant to the United States, now a citizen, uh, who grew up in a country where the word immigrant meant people who were coming into Zambia, not people who were leaving, uh, fleeing as refugees to, to go to the West. So my novel is about people coming to Zambia and staying, an Italian, an Indian, uh, a British person. You know, they all arrive in Zambia and decide to settle there. Um, but I was interested in how the people who came and stayed integrated into Zambia and mixed and mingled literally through marriage and love, my, my, my parents being a prime example of that, and created these new kind of cultural forms and also this new understanding of Zambia as a nation. We, When they drew those arbitrary lines around my country, they kind of lassoed seven main tribes. We speak 72 different dialects in Zambia. And our first president, Kenneth Kaunda, came up with this mantra, one Zambia, one nation, to try and unify this country that had been kind of arbitrarily thrown together um, by outside forces. And that sense of one Zambia, one nation, sense of unity with difference within it is something that is so important to the way that we conceive of ourselves at home. Having completed a, a novel this uh, extensive, this beautifully convoluted, do you now just want to write a limerick? <laughs> 
I do. I you know the the classic phrase is a slim volume. I do have in mind that the next book will be cleaner, more streamlined, and slim. The Old Drift debut novel from Namali Serpel. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Sun and Ski Sports. They're celebrating National Bike Month in May with a big giveaway. Enter in-store to win a Cannondale Trail mountain bike or online to win a Haro Flightline 1 mountain bike. Cycling isn't just transportation. It's a boost for physical and mental health. Join them for Bike to Work Week from May 13th to 19th. Make every ride count this National Bike Month. Gear up at Sun and Ski Sports, where adventure begins. Visit sunandski.com. Serpel wasn't lying when she said her next book was going to be a little slimmer. Her new book, The Furrows and Elegy, is a couple hundred pages shorter, but sounds just as powerful. Serpel talked to NPR's Wano Summers about loss and grief and how when someone you love dies, they don't just die once. They die every time you remember they're dead. I don't want to tell you what happened. I want to tell you how it felt. That's author Namwali Serpol reading from her second novel, The Furrows, an elegy. Those opening lines echo again and again throughout the book. The book's first narrator is Cassandra, known as C. When she was 12 years old, she went to the beach with her younger brother, Wayne. They went swimming, and Wayne disappeared in a storm. Wayne's absence fractures their family, but even though he's gone, Wayne appears everywhere. Cassandra's mom, Charlotte, is white and her dad's black, and Serpol was born in Zambia, and her own family is of mixed origin. I felt like, as in my first novel, The Old Drift, I wanted to explore some of the variations on the theme of the mixed family. Moving to America, uh, my family, which is a mixed-race family, was encountering very different ways of negotiating racial dynamics within a family. And so I was interested in in teasing that apart. Charlotte creates a, a foundation for missing children, which is called Vigil. And at one point in the novel, Cassandra describes this as a a way of uh, paying um, of, a way of profiting off of death uh, or profiting off of loss. And I was, I've been interested in the ways that as America tries to come to terms with the great violence of its past, um, its racialized past, how what seems to be these large scale movements of feeling, these, this, this sense of mourning or the sense of rage uh, or the sense even of connection is always accompanied by hucksters on either side of the racial line trying to profit off of it. As you mentioned, the accident, Wayne's loss, is retold over and over again, reimagined in the different settings you discussed. I'm curious, what were you hoping to explore about loss and grief? It felt to me when I was reading at times that... She was that C was forced to relive losing her brother in these different ways as the readers reintroduced to that moment. The repetitions were meant to mimic the rhythm of mourning. I have the sense from those that I've lost and from talking to people who've lost others that a person that you love doesn't die just once for you. They die every time that you remember that they're dead. And that reiteration of grief this experience of loss doesn't get 
necessarily easier with time. And reinscribing the catastrophe of loss in these repetitions in the novel was an attempt for me to enact that for Cassandra, but also to make the reader undergo that same intensity of loss uh, every time. I want to ask you about C's relationship with her mother and the way that she grows to understand her, but also when sometimes she's protective of her, like when her college roommate criticizes her mother. I'd love to know, did you take any inspiration from your own relationship with your mother as you constructed that dynamic? No, but I I have to say I'm with uh, Toni Morrison, who said, I don't really feel like I'm writing unless I'm inventing. I was more interested, I think, in trying to delineate the ways that mourning can skew the relationships between other members of the family in ways that are often not predictable to us. It felt to me very important to capture the way that grief often carries a line of rage running through it, almost like a thin line of mercury or something, that a bit of poison in the midst of it. And so Cassandra and Charlotte both are really struggling with guilt. And they repress that guilt. They disavow that guilt in all kinds of ways. They blame each other. They blame themselves. But they are constrained in how they can express that to each other. And trying to capture the way that this kind of simmering rage can underlie the process of mourning, I think was really my interest there with those two women. Well, we begin learning the story through C's eyes. There's a point in the book where the perspective begins to shift. Um, Talk to us a little bit about that. I was interested there in presenting a very different narrative. It's obviously a different gender and a different class position, but also a different experience of loss. He's lost his parents, not his child uh, or his brother. And the way that he deals with the, the foreshortening of possibility in his life as a Black man is quite distinct from Cassandra's. I wanted to juxtapose these different ways of looking at loss in the world uh, within the Black community, Um, not necessarily to say that one is better than the other, but just to say that there are so many different ways of thinking about loss, and also that sometimes the best that you can do is to place your loss next to someone else's and see how they resonate. When I finish this book, I feel like I came away with a sense of understanding and exploration, but not necessarily closure, I wouldn't say. What do you hope readers take away from this story when they put the book down? Well, I think it goes back to the lines that I chose to begin the book with and which appears a kind of refrain uh, from Cassandra. I don't want to tell you what happened. I want to tell you how it felt. I want the reader to come away with a feeling And this is one of the reasons I chose to subtitle the the novel An Elegy. I wanted to capture not just the poetic rhythms that inhere in something like an elegy, the refrains, 
the the rhymes, the the meter. I also wanted to capture the way that a poem doesn't really function to give you a takeaway or a message or a moral. A poem is a way of drawing you into and through an experience. It in many ways is there to conjure a feeling. And the complexity of grief means that it's not just one feeling. When I say a feeling, I probably mean a dozen feelings at once. My hope is that the waves of feeling throughout the novel will build and culminate in a kind of symphony of feeling that comes somewhat close to capturing the multifaceted complexity of grief. Now, Molly Serpel's latest novel is The Furrows, an elegy. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. That's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. If you want more, you can sign up for our newsletter at npr.org slash newsletter slash books. I'm Andrew Limbong. The podcast is produced by Mason Tran and Jeevika Verma and edited by Megan Selvin. Our founding editor is Petra Mayer. The show elements for this week were produced and edited by Phil Harrell, Brina Advani, Samantha Balaband, Ed McNulty, Erica Ryan, Sarah Handel, Maima Aina, Gustavo Contreras, and Justine Kennan. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thanks for listening. Support for NPR and the following message come from Bombas. Bombas makes absurdly soft socks, underwear, and T-shirts. And for every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Get 20% off your first purchase at bombas.com NPR and use code NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. On the TED Radio Hour, researcher Sasha Lucioni says AI can help us find climate solutions. But just training the technology itself uses a ton of energy. Training ChatGPT, for instance, emits as much carbon as five cars in their lifetime. Tech's climate conundrum. That's on the TED Radio Hour from NPR.